Hello and welcome to my podcast. My guest today is my friend and colleague from MIT, Emily Mu. A few weeks ago, I made a video about how I landed one of the best paid trading internships working for the hedge fund called Dishan Company. Emily worked for the same hedge fund as I, but is a quantitative analyst. We're going to make a comparison in a few minutes. Also, Emily won many math competitions in high school and she's a hobby stand-up comedian. Enjoy the conversation. So thank you, Emily, so much for being here. Yeah, for sure. Thank uh, you I'm for very happy me. to ha have you on my podcast. Um, I always have very interesting guests here, so I thought like sooner or later I definitely have to have you on the podcast. <laughs> I feel very yeah. honored. <laughs> <laughs> so there are a lot of really interesting things that I want to talk about, but um, so ju just so let's actually say how we know each other for first. So two weeks ago I had Sachi Jane here on the podcast. I think you know her, right? Yes, I do. Yeah, we, we actually met at, at her party, or maybe you know one of her roommates. I do. I know one of her roommates better. Oh, but yeah, yes, yeah. We met at her party, I think last semester in October or something. It was the Halloween party, yeah. Yes, the Halloween party. Oh, yeah. And yeah. It, was, it was actually my first Halloween in the US, so I didn't actually know how this works. So <laughs> I kind of Googled it and like, figured out that everybody's like super serious about dressing up. Yes. So it was like a night before, so I quickly ordered something from Amazon. The only thing that would arrive on time was this monk costume. Oh, <laughs> like, yeah. You remember that, that, yeah. Yes. Yeah. And then, you know, I, I I just left to the party, but then I was like, no, that doesn't, doesn't look like me. So I went back and cut out all the sleeves. <laughs> so it'd be like a gym bro monk. <laughs> I remember that too. Yeah. I, I don't remember habits looking like that, but you know, okay. Yes. I, I wish I had a picture of it. Actually, if I have one, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to blend it in, but I'm not sure if I can find one. <laughs> so it was a very fun party. That was really, um, yes. And yeah, I mean, you're, you're a super interesting person. Then, you know, we, we stayed in contact and that's also then how I invited you to this podcast. Yeah. Um, but yeah, let's let's start at the beginning. Like you're originally from Chicago, right? Yes, I'm originally from Chicago, or I'm from a suburb outside of Chicago. Mm -hmm. But um, yeah, and then I've lived there my whole life, and I only I came to MIT for undergrad, um, did my master's here, and then now I'm doing my PhD. Same as you. So. Oh yeah. Well, it's a nice place to be here. Yeah. <laughs> It's, a um, good, it's fun. I like Boston. Yeah, I mean, I'm not surprised that you stayed like for the whole time. I mean, MIT is such an amazing place to be at. Yes, definitely. And um, so tell me, how did you in high school or even before that get interested like in research, science and computer science and all these things? Yeah, um, so I was a math kid growing up. So I did like, a lot of math <laughs> contests and things like that. I mean, I actually didn't really learn how to code until my last year of high school. No. Um, yeah, so knew absolutely nothing about coding, even though both my parents are software engineers. But, you know, that's my parents would always be like, it's in your blood. And like, I don't <laughs> think it works that way. But, you know, yes, that's I okay. think so, too. Um, and so I came to MIT. Uh, I was a course 6-3, which is uh, uh, computer science. Mm -hmm. um, and then I didn't actually, I applied to grad school kind of super last minute. So I always thought I was going to go into quantitative research. Um, and so like I did internships every summer, like my last internship I did at Deisha actually. Oh, during your undergrads, right? During my yeah. undergrad, yeah. And then my senior year, I was also doing my master's at the same time mm -hmm. uh, in the same lab that I'm at now with Professor John Guttag. Um, and so I think I just, I really liked that experience. And I think like speaking with the grad student I was working with and with John, they, were, they automatically assumed I would be applying. Mm -hmm. So I was like, oh, I guess if like, you're willing to write me a rec, I guess I'll just apply anyway. Oh, that's so um, cool. So I applied very last minute. Uh, and I think for me, I, that was kind of when I decided that I wanted to at least try research and get more research skills uh, mm -hmm. before probably going back into industry. So. Nice, nice. Yeah. And um, the high school competitions, I saw you went to some math competitions, but also some physics competitions, right? I did, yes. Yeah, so I did like the United States Math Olympiad, mm -hmm. Physics Olympiad, that track of things. Mm -hmm. but Is that like the, the like also qualification for the International <laughs> Physics Math Olympiad? Yes, I did not make it that far. <laughs> it's kind of hard in the US with 300, over 300,000 people. Yes, yeah. But So it's, it's like the step before, which mm -hmm. is like the test that you give to like all the uh, to like all the high school students. But, oh, nice. So how yeah. did you, how did, how did you like it? How did you prepare for all of these things? Um, lots of studying. There's lots <laughs> of like, I think, uh, especially in like, in like my home community, there's like a lot of like math competitions are a very like, big presence. And so there's lots of like training camps and materials and things that you go to. Like every summer I went to math camp when I was, like, <laughs> when I was a kid. And so, yeah. 
very so you got exposed to this very early yes yeah very much and so. you you liked math all the way through it didn't make you dislike it at some point yeah it didn't make me dislike i mean i feel like once i started college i i was still a math major so i was also course 18 but um i definitely didn't do like like all the competitive math stopped and mm -hmm. so it's not I, don't, I was probably, I don't know, my mental math was probably fastest in high school, to be completely honest. So. <laughs> you know, it, it's the same thing for me. I mean, I, I also went to all these math, physics, Olympiads, etc. Yeah. Um, actually, to, I went only to the International Physics Olympiad and like the States uh, Math like, Oh, that's Olympiad. awesome. Yeah. For what country? Uh, for Croatia at that time, yeah. And, but you know what's interesting? I, I also think like I was so much smarter in high school. Yeah, <laughs> at least faster. Yeah. Like I probably yeah. didn't know as much, but I was definitely faster and like... I was quicker. Yeah, yeah, so I feel like my, my intelligence peak kind of last year high school, first year college, then I could just calculate anything in my head like this. Yeah. Now this, I'm like staring at things and like I have to write down everything. <laughs> <laughs> no, I Divide two integers with a calculator and that stuff, you know? Yeah. I joke with my friends, I'm like, I have one brain cell left in grad school and I just need to take care of it until <laughs> I graduate. So, but yeah. yeah, I sometimes, and I don't know if you would agree with that, I feel like all these like science competitions, math competitions in high school, they're like really intellectually challenging in some way. They're like, you know, work hard but for your brain in some way. You get really smart at calculating stuff. Then at university, I mean, things are still hard, but not in that like challenging way, but more in a way that you just have to know a lot of things, know how to apply certain tools to certain problems. Yeah. No, I completely yeah. agree with that. Yeah, I think it's, I think like, a lot of like the math competitions and science contests in high school is something it's like you train your brain to solve puzzles very quickly mm -hmm. versus I feel like in college it's more like learning how to learn things I guess yeah like seeing whether or not you can regurgitate them when you take exams yeah exactly so, yeah you know this is actually a very interesting topic but um, I'm gonna certainly make like a whole video at some point about this um, but you know I made one video about the Shaw uh, the internship and like the interview process and I mentioned and I told people, you know, it's like very important that you're very good at, you know, probability and like have a good mathematical intuition. Like, okay, knowing how to calculate things in your head, it's fine. Um, it's good practice. But in the end, you just need to be very intuitive with numbers. Yeah. Um, so a lot of people asked me if I could make a video about how do you, how do you get intuition for mathematics? Like, how, how did you develop your mathematical intuition? Is there any trick? Honestly, I think a lot of it is just practice. Yeah. yeah. And I think it's like once you learn how to be creative, uh, I think like you're able like once you I think a base part of it is just gaining enough skills and then applying those skills creatively in novel problems because mm -hmm. I don't think like for quantitative interviews I feel like there's not that many different topics that you mm -hmm. have to actually know right like it's like correlation um, yeah. like ordinarily squares regression type stuff um, and like just kind of like what happens if you like translate different variables in different ways and there's sometimes like geometry problems and like projection and stuff yeah. and so but i feel like it's like not it's not super difficult math you know it's yeah. not like super advanced number theory it's just more about like how can you apply this limited set of things very creatively kind of in the real world so Th that's true yeah. that's true and i also think that all these super fancy tools that i learned during university I, I'm not that good at applying them, actually, as I am with the tools that I learned in high school. No, I agree. I feel like because those were kind of like, like unless yeah. I feel like it's one of those things, if you don't use it, you kind of like lose it a little bit. And so yeah. the good thing about math contests is that, and like physics contests and things, is it made you use them constantly. So yeah. it's much harder to forget once it's kind of like rote memory. Oh, yeah. yeah so. But I mean, that's, that's really fascinating. And so a lot of practice, um, I mean, do you think that like most people can, with a lot of practice, develop intuition, or is it something that people are just born with? Um, I think people can learn intuition. I feel like it's more like, I think like the reason why I was good at math in high school, part of it was also definitely the fact that you do it from a young age, right? I feel yeah. like it's kind of like how like people do sports from a young age, at yeah. least. It's like you like train yourself it's all, um, to like, like learn a skill set and like build on that skill set and I feel like kind of I don't know I feel like there's like lots of problems with the American education system but I feel like it's often like you learn a new topic every year and it's really yeah. hard to like build upon the old things um, so I think contests kind of allow you to explore that creative side of mathematics more so yeah, yeah, yeah for sure. I, I think a lot of it is just like I think for example 
like coming into MIT, um, like I knew a lot of people already from kind of the math contest world, if that makes mm -hmm. sense, uh, when I was an undergrad. But I feel like I know also, I have a bunch of friends who are from like lower income areas um, and like didn't do math contests kind of growing up. And I feel like, like they're obviously super intelligent, right? And like very qualified and some of them are at the best grad schools and mm -hmm. like, uh, in, in, in um, the US, but I think they had a hard time. Like I was talking to a friend who grew up in like a lower income area of Georgia and he was telling me that he took the AMC for the first time or like this was like this is like the process. Of but what is the AMC? Oh, sorry. So it's like the American Math Contest. Oh, I see. Okay. Um, and then you take that test. It's like a whole sequence of tests to mm -hmm. get into IMO for us because there's just like in every every step, it's like narrower. They like, like yeah. there's like a cutoff. Um, but he took like the initial test once and he actually got like a pretty good score, but it wasn't like good enough to qualify him for the next round. Mm -hmm. And so he just assumed he was bad at it, even though like everyone he was competing with has been doing this since yeah, the exactly. grade, you know, so I feel like it's a very, I don't know, it's hard. I think a lot of it is the fact that like if you, if you work at it and train at it, it's often like I think that's kind of why it's very hard to compete sometimes. Yeah, it's it's kind of interesting to see all the different countries in the world how they handle these math competitions. Many countries, including the U.S., I feel like a lot of people don't even know about them, just because yeah. their high school wasn't into that. Yeah, that's true. Um, I grew up in Croatia, where everything is based on competitions in some way. So every school, no matter how rich or poor, they all have you know a school competition for every single course they offer. Wow. Then they have you know like a. This, uh, like a city district competition then like for the whole state and then for the country. Yeah, for so every subject, like math, physics? Basically every major subject has, has some kind of competition, yeah. Interesting. Um, which is, I think it's a really cool system because a lot of people like, I, I was so bored in, in, in school um, and I didn't even have good grades, I just thought that I don't get these things. Yeah. But it was really just that I was not motivated and that some of the things were just not challenging in some way. Yeah. But then the moment I started going into competitions, that was just my like kind of breakthrough in some way. Yeah. No, yeah. I think it's often it is very motivating to like to compete, I think, rather than just it, it is, it yeah. is definitely. So. Yeah. Moving on, okay, we finished we graduated high school, I think yes. roughly the same time. Yes, I um, think so. And then so we started MIT. Um, yes. can you tell us about this ex whole experience? How did you like it? The whole undergrad experience. Everything in like um, a few minutes. I don't know if you ever hung out with undergrads. I think it's like it's it's both similar and different to the grad school experience. Mm -hmm. Where I feel like in grad school um, like even though it's still very social and there's still like house parties like what's that we went to and <laughs> but I think when you're an undergrad you really get to like MIT is very unique because we mm -hmm. have a really strong undergrad culture um, like every dorm is very like close uh, and every like every living group within every dorm in particular has its own different culture um, mm. and different mascots and I think that's very different from um, from most schools in a large sense. Where like I, with the people that I lived with, um, like over the pandemic, there was like seven generations of people who lived in my particular living group and we would like often Zoom call and stuff. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's something that's really unique. Also, I think um, the fact that everyone is an engineer, like I forget <laughs> sometimes that there's schools where not everyone does <laughs> Like Harvard um, next door. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Or I was like talking to a grad student from Yale and he was like, yeah, computer science is a minority when I was an undergrad. And I was like, really? minority? It's like 50%. <laughs> yes, it's half of us here. <laughs> yeah. um, so it's honestly, I think it's, uh, I think that's something that's pretty, unique where I think my favorite part when I visited campus I remember when I was like browsing colleges and stuff is that uh, I think MIT students in general tend to be very honest mm -hmm. um, I picked MIT because okay so this is like a but I, I remember I was talking to people about like you know like what college should I choose and stuff <laughs> and I, when I came to MIT um, what they told me was that everyone's miserable but we're miserable together <laughs> and then when i went to stanford they're like we're all happy here i was like they're lying there's no <laughs> way that everyone well you know when i sweater all the time yeah, that's true <laughs> it boosts your your uh, mood <laughs> but i was like you know i'm gonna go to yeah. school where everyone's brutally honest <laughs> i'd rather be miserable together <laughs> um so i think that's uh i think that's like a very good summary of kind of the culture where it's definitely very like work hard play hard 
Um, so it's miserable. You should join. <laughs> it's 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 a. You're doing great advertisement. <laughs> <laughs> but I think it's like it's very like you put a hundred percent of yourself into everything that you do, which is really and everyone is so interesting, you know. Yeah. I think that's one of the best parts about MIT. The people are really the main main thing here for me. Yeah. We also it's uh we're on the list of top party schools in the U.S. as well because when you're an undergrad, a lot of students from like BU and Emerson, Wellesley. Um, Harvard, they all come to MIT frat parties and stuff. Oh, they do? Yeah, they do. That's amazing. Yeah. I wasn't even aware of that. Really? Molly Obama came to several. Oh, really? That's the, yeah. You met Molly Obama? No, they actually shut down that party because it got too crazy. Oh. <laughs> But I could have. You know, I actually once met her at Harvard. Really? Um, like, didn't meet her, but it was like a very, again, it's like a very funny story. So the pandemic had just started. Yeah. And that was the day when they said, okay, guys, last chance to get into your office, grab your monitors, your desks, whatever you want, get it out and bring it to your home so you can work for the next yeah. year or whatever. Oh, wow. Yeah. So it was like just before midnight because at midnight they would lock everything. I was like wearing a dark hoodie. It was a winter. Going into my office, I just got my screen and a bunch of other things. Yeah. Basically, looked like some kind of criminal, you know, <laughs> stealing stuff from Harvard. And then I was like walking through through the yard, and then suddenly, you know, I was like going very quickly. It looked very serious, and suddenly, like almost ran into some girl. And I think I really scared her, but I'm like 95% certain that it was Melly Obama. Oh my yes. god! She Wait, got really like she she saw me, and then she just turned around and went in another direction. I didn't mean to scare her, but yeah, yeah that did happen. No, wow, that's. I've seen I've seen Jeff Bezos on campus. I actually. just wanted to mention Jeff Bezos' son is here. Yes, his son is here. here. He, his son, I think, is graduating this year because he's the same year as my little sister. Oh yeah. Um, but yeah, <laughs> <laughs> he comes and visits his son, so that's. A yeah. Also, the Croatian president, um, her daughter is at Harvard. Um, oh wow! Yeah, it's also very fun. So she also often comes comes there. Yeah. Like you know, I randomly I saw her. a selfie <laughs> on her on her Instagram profile, and then I'm like, oh, that's like next to where I live. Yeah. No, it's cool. It's like, huh? <laughs> <laughs> it's a very typical thing for Harvard and MIT. Yeah. yeah. No, definitely. Which is really, it's fun. Also, like the Marvel universe, a lot of it happens at MIT and Harvard as well. They oh, were really? filming for um, Black Panther 2 earlier this year. Did you not? Yes, there there was something happening. Like yeah. they were actually filming it on MIT, right? They were. They actually. So I live in an undergrad dorm as a graduate resident mm -hmm. advisor, and they were filming like right across the street from me. So oh, really? like the whole parking lot was closed because it was all actors, trailers, and stuff. Oh wow. Um, but yeah. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't see them somehow, or I saw some trucks around, yeah. but I never actually saw like the scene where they were, where they were filming. I, er, I feel like they like blocked off the area where they were actually filming. Kind of makes sense, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I saw like the other things around. It, oh yeah. I also wanted to talk about your internships. So you did some really yes. really cool internships. You worked for Google and then the coolest hedge fund on this planet. Oh, of course, <laughs> the coolest hedge fund on the planet. <laughs> um, so, you want to talk a bit about Google and how yeah, you like it? Yeah, for sure. Um, so, I was a software engineer at Google. Um, so, I actually worked on a research-esque team. It's called Ad Thresholds. So, mm -hmm. basically, there's two buildings in Google dedicated, or like, there's this whole area of Google dedicated just to advertising, because mm -hmm. advertising is the only thing that really makes Google a lot yeah. of money. Um, actually, the first day I started my internship, I sat down And my mentor was like, our team makes 86% of Google's revenue <laughs> at the time. And I was like, no wow, pressure. okay, so we cannot fail. Um, but basically, like what Ad Thresholds does is that we take all of these variables that are collected by other teams at Google mm -hmm. about ads. Um, so for example, things like, uh, like, how, like how, how many people click on it, like click-through rate, how long people stay on a page when mm -hmm. they like see an ad. Um, and like, there's a bunch of other variables that like kind of go into this. Uh, and then they do ad ranking. So where the like our team was the one who basically like decides who sees what ad. Like if you go to Google and you search something, yeah. you like it does the ad ranking. Um, so there's like a lot of auction theory in there too, yeah. right? Because like you're prioritizing like two things that you're optimizing for. One is obviously like which advertiser pays you more money, and like uh, like you need to be able to. Uh, give them their money yeah, yeah, for exactly. but also obviously like if your consumers hate the ads they're seeing then that's really bad for like your company model they're not yeah. going to come visit again right and so it's kind of a balance of the two which is really interesting it's very complicated yeah yeah and so i was working on kind of making this model more fine-grained towards kind of individual demographics mm -hmm. um so it's basically like for example 
uh, like you might want to show someone who's like 80 and like lives in a rural area some different ads than someone who's like young and lives in New York City, you know? I'm just thinking um, like Trump ads and Clinton ads or something yeah, like that yeah. in this case, yeah. But it's actually, it's really interesting because you would think that like this is something that machine learning is really good at because like Google has so many machines and like, you know, like the top research teams yeah, in yeah. the world. But it's interesting, at least when I was doing it in 2017, uh, there was no machine learning at all. It's what? individually tuned parameters that they're selecting. Are you serious? No, I'm completely <laughs> serious. Um, that's like optimized for. And the reason why they do that is because like of explainability, where like they can't mm -hmm. have their ads engine fail. Where like there's been machine learning methods that were used in A/B testing, but the why the like the the algorithm that was pushed right like to like the all the majority of Google mm -hmm. users, it's like literally this linear equation of fine-tuned oh, parameters and like variables that kind of compute Is that quality. still the case? Um, I don't know. I'm not pri like, yeah. privy to that information anymore, but oh, yeah, true. as of me leaving in 2017, um, they weren't planning on changing it back then. So, wow. Uh, yeah. And um, were you located in the headquarters in Googleplex? I was, yeah. I, oh, was, cool. uh, I was in Mountain View, which is, it's a beautiful, beautiful complex. It's very nice there, um, yeah. My building itself had a rock climbing wall, a dance studio, two gyms. Oh, really? <laughs> And a bowling alley, I think. Yeah. That's that's pretty cool. Yeah. I mean, I've been to Google Plex, Plex well, only once. I probably I didn't see that building because I can't remember that. I was like in the where they do like the hardware. Oh no, yeah, that's like on the other side of campus from us. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I was in um. So there's this area called Crit. It's all mm -hmm. ads. <laughs> and they have lots of events because they want to keep people who do ads happy. Yeah, because they make all the money. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's true. Yeah, I actually, it's interesting because my advisor, my mentor that summer used to be on like a peer research team. Mm -hmm. And I was talking to her and I was like, why did you move to ads? Like she had her PhD, everything. And she was like, well, I was tired of my teams being disbanded when like things didn't work and they were never going to disband ads. So yeah. I was like, this is stable. So. <laughs> it is stable, yeah. yeah. I mean, Google is an amazing company to work for. Yeah. Um, I even considered like working on the hardware part, but then uh, for some reason, what did I do? For some reason, I didn't end up doing that. Yeah. Um, but yeah. You I, worked I, for D. Shaw instead. I worked for D. Shaw instead, yeah, the best hedge fund in the world. Yeah. That's actually a good topic I wanted to talk <laughs> about. So I already made one video specifically about D. Shaw. So I was in the London office, mm -hmm. um, which has like 25 people. Um, and just two interns per summer. Oh, wow. I don't know if they grew in the meantime, but yeah. I was in theory like a trader, but then I became like a quant trader or something like in between. Yeah. But you joined the, the headquarters in New York, right? As I a did, quant yes. intern. So I was, yeah, I was a quant intern. So actually it's interesting because at Shaw, all the quant interns and like software interns, like we're all called hybrids. Um, mm -hmm. The idea is that you work like between quant and software somewhere in the middle because mm -hmm. um, everyone codes. But uh, I worked on the quant equities team. Mm -hmm. So I think that's like 25 people per team. There's quant equities, quant options, and quant futures. Mm -hmm. And there was four interns on my team. So. Okay. And yeah. the structure is then probably some senior vice president and then some other people in like all yeah. the quarters or how does it work? Um, so I think for the quant teams, uh, every like quant options, quant futures and quant equities each have an MD mm -hmm. um, and that reports directly to one of like the four, the top four oh, people. I see. Um, so yeah, and so, and then obviously there's like some interior management in between, but it's pretty flat hierarchy actually. It is, yeah. Um, which I, I mean, I often really met nice. the, the board members. Yeah, 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 exactly, yeah. And so I think the manager of quant equities reported directly to the board member from what I remember. Yeah, so in New York, um, they're like the three board members, one for quant, one is in charge of, she's in charge of HR, I think. Yes. And then there's uh, another person who is, I think he's a trader. Yeah, um, we're, we're on different floors yeah. from the traders actually. So there's a yeah. floor that's just quantitative. Um, yeah, I remember that, yeah. Uh, and so the trading floor is a lot more, it's a lot louder. Actually, oh, this I love is really that trading funny. floor. <laughs> yeah, so they have like in shot they have in that on the trading floor they have these like muffling machines. So like muffling like, machines? Yeah, so it's like this like noise machine that like kind of muffles like so because people are shouting at each other all the time. Oh yeah. We like, were shouting at this, each other, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So they have this like muffling machine, so it's like easier to talk to other people that are near you. Um, and that muffles like louder noises on the floor and stuff. But the quant the quant <laughs> floor is the only floor that doesn't have that. The, yeah, New York office, I remember every so time I, I went, I don't know which floor it was, is it up or down from the trading floor? I think it's down, right? Um, like it would go from the trading floor down, I would suddenly 
it would feel almost spooky that it's yeah, so it's quiet. Yeah, it's like a church. There. It's, it's, it's like a church, yeah. It, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And the trading floor, I mean, the, the one in New York is even louder than the one in, in London because it's smaller. Yeah. But yeah, it's like news blasting out of speakers and like There's all the corners. There's screens everywhere. I love yeah. that so yeah, much. It is, it's really, I think it's a very different working environment for oh, sure. Oh, yeah. There's like days like when I would be working where I just have my headphones on the whole time and you almost mm -hmm. don't talk to anyone. Um, but I think it's a... I think it's just the nature of the work is a little bit different. Yeah, so it's not like Wolf of Wall Street, it's like more researchy in some way. Yeah, it is more researchy. It's definitely more researchy. It's still, I think it's, uh, I think in some ways it's like more nerdy. You it's, know, it's yeah. like, it's <laughs> Most of the people there are like physicists actually, even people yeah. with PhDs or like former professors who joined the Yishaw. We actually calculated on the quant equities team when I, we were like talking once at a group dinner, mm -hmm. the average number of MIT degrees on my team was greater than one. Wait, really? Yeah. <laughs> oh, wow, that's it crazy. Was like, it was like greater than, which is crazy. It was like 1.25 to 1.5. I mean, they, so what I noticed when I went to, to New York, so I only had like one, there was one other intern in London. Yeah. Um, so they flew me like, I think two times at least to, to New York. And I think almost all the interns there were Harvard, Stanford, MIT, those three universities. Definitely, there's, I think the greatest representation was MIT for sure. Yeah. Um, we definitely had a bunch of Harvard and Stanford. We had one Yale intern who worked in the law office that I remember. Um, but yeah, it's very, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think I'd be like calculate, it's like 30 to 50% of her, 30% of interns my summer was from MIT. So. Definitely a very oh, wow, that's, strong presence. That's really cool, yeah. yeah. I think when I was there, I was literally the only one from like an unknown university. I was at the University of Zagreb at that time in oh, Croatia. Oh, that's <laughs> awesome. Yeah. Uh, but it was a cool experience, yeah. So I was there in 2016, actually. I think you were there I two years there later. I was in 2018, summer. Yeah. Yes, two years later. Two years later. Um, I don't know how much changed in the meantime. Obviously, I haven't really been in contact with these people. Um, but I mean, yeah, it's an, it's an amazing company. Yeah. Um, can you tell us a bit about the interview process? So I already spoke in the video about like the trading intern, like interview. Yeah. Um, but how is it From like to interview for interview? a quant? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I guess I can talk a little bit about quant interviews in general because those mm -hmm. are the interviews I'm most familiar with. Um, but essentially, so um, there's usually like one coding question just to make sure that like you can code. Yeah. Um, that, uh, but they tend to be quite long, from what I remember. So usually for like an internship. Uh, they usually give you around five to six interviews. It's a whole day on site. Um, the structure is really dependent on the company, but mm -hmm. usually it's like you'll talk with one person for an hour, um, and that person will either ask you about, they tend to do two things. So they ask you about a project that you've worked on, um, and they'll also give you a technical question. And I think our technical questions might be a little bit more, a little different from traders in that um, we don't really get asked anything about finance. To be honest, going in yeah. to do shot, I almost knew nothing about finance. Um, I mean, neither. And so, <laughs> um, but I've like spoken to other traders, and they get like asked some more finance-specific questions. But for us, it's more like um, so. There's, I guess, so there's like I guess three different types of questions that I would break things down into. So the first is kind of like standard derivation questions, where it's like, um, well, like. I've been asked to derive like ordinary least squares very many times over, <laughs> you know, and like what happens if you change some variables and stuff like that. Um, there's also kind of like more creative mathematical probability questions. Um, so a lot of like the coin flipping questions, um, like what happens if you have like a large group of people, uh, like kind of like large numbers type mm -hmm. stuff, and like uh, like like how many people do you have to pick to get like near an average or something. Um, and then there's also kind of what I would call kind of like more creative questions. And so like one question that I got once was like, imagine that you have access to like all Google searches or something. Um, like how would you try to like use this information in order to get like some better understanding of like, I don't know, just, uh, I don't remember what their specific example was, but it was something like, um, like, like market value mm -hmm. of like products or something like that. Um, or like, I remember another one was uh, like, let's imagine you have some access to data for like houses, like or like, and you're a real estate agent, like how would you yeah. price houses and stuff? So like stuff like that. Um, so it's more about, I guess those are kind of more like machine learning directed questions, mm -hmm. but like more like very creative type, like how would you construct any, like how would you start using information? Did you have to code these things or just no, like no, tell them like what you would do? No, no, this is like very high level, yeah. Okay. Um, but like I think it's like you tell them what to do and then you get to the point where you like, 
write down the data that you have and you like write like, like a basic modeling algorithm. Um, oh, I see. Well, so it's, it's actually quite similar to the trading, just maybe a bit less, you know, the qu I mean, a bit more of the questions like how would you solve yeah. a problem like computationally? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I think, yeah, a lot of it is definitely mathematical, though. It feels a lot like math contests. Math contests, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. But how much coding do you need to know? How much coding did I? Um, you should definitely be able to code. I think though, quant interviews are a lot less coding than finance, or like than, than software engineering interviews. Yeah. Um, so I only was ever asked like one coding question maximum per quantitative interview, either mm -hmm. internship or full time. And usually it's something that's, I don't, I remember the questions not being super like clever or anything. Yeah. It's usually like, it's, it's all in Python. Um, and it's, uh, or like, I think they also offer Java if you want to do that, but like, uh, essentially it's basically just like, like, I remember one of them was like about a queue or something. Uh, okay. like you have like some weather data, like how do you figure out? It was, it was more like, do you know how to do this or do you not know how to code? Yeah. Um, okay. So. so, I mean, for most of these things, basically all you need is like some for loops, if statements. Exactly. You don't need yeah. to know anything advanced. It wasn't advanced. very complicated. Yeah. Yeah. So. Okay. And Alison, and I'm, I don't know if you agree with that, but I feel like all the quant people, so they're very, they're really like scientists, basically. They're very down to earth, um, knowledgeable about science because often they have like a PhD in physics or whatever. Um, traders are a completely different type of people. Um, so super nice. Yeah. But I remember. Traders are crazy. They're, they're <laughs> but yeah, in some way, you know, yeah. like, I mean, they're, they're pretty cool people. You know, I had a lot of fun during these interviews. I remember one of the interviews, the guy was like really high up in DSHA actually. Yeah. He came in and you know, he asked like where you're from and I said Croatian was like, Oh you're president, she's like really hot. <laughs> he said that during the interview. Yeah. Yes, that would that does never happen in any of my interviews. Yeah. Yeah. Wouldn't expect that. I think like I think the quant stereotype is that they're more nerdy, they're more yeah. antisocial, they're all like PhDs, they all just keep to their own selves and they like, get super excited about talking about math and science, which yeah. I think is like pretty fair. Versus I feel like traders are just, uh, they're, they're a lot of fun. Let's just, yeah. I, I've heard many crazy trading stories where like they do crazy bets with each other and stuff. So oh yeah, I, we do that all the time. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Yeah, I actually, I worked at a quant firm after, um, after I, I, before I started my PhD and after I left college for about seven months. Um, and I remember a lot of my old coworkers used to work at like places like DRW and stuff. Mm -hmm. And they were telling us stories of how like they would make crazy bets, like how many chicken nuggets someone would eat. <laughs> and they placed thousands of dollars of bets on this poor man's chicken nugget eating ability. And he ended up like oh. growing up. <laughs> oh no. Um, yeah, that sounds, just like wild. Right. It's, and like people are just cheering in the background. Like, that's like <laughs> a trading floor. That's not a quant floor. So. That sounds really like Wolf of Wall yeah. Street, basically. <laughs> it is. It is very Wolf. I think when people imagine Wolf of Wall Street type office, that's a trading floor. That's not a quantitative floor. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. Except the people at DSHOT, I, I don't think like all of them seemed either neutral or nice. Like they never seemed like DSHOT, sorry, uh, the, both of Wall Street folks, I mean, their job was basically selling garbage stocks to poor people and making them yeah. poorer. Disha doesn't do these things. No, I mean, not no, at all. Absolutely. I think Disha is actually one of the, every hedge fund has a slightly different culture. Mm -hmm. And I think Disha is one of the nicest. I think they yeah. really look for cultural fits yeah. uh, for the workplace, which I think is really, uh, it's a really good thing. Yeah, it's a really nice place to work. So. I, I agree. Like, even the training people, in the end of the day, you know, they were all not had. You know, they didn't seem, you know, when you think about all of these people, I don't know, just being on cocaine and hookers, basically, you yeah. know, that, that doesn't exist at DSHA. No, at least no, to my knowledge, I don't think it exists. Yeah, no. But yeah, so DSHA is great. Did you ever consider like going back? Uh, um, so I didn't go back. So or I, I did consider going back. I was deciding between going to DSHA full time or doing my PhD. I ended up taking my PhD offer. I took six months off. Uh, so I went back to Chicago, actually, and I worked for a hedge fund startup. Mm -hmm. It's called Aquatic LLC. Um, yeah, you mentioned that. Yeah, so basically... Aquatic LLC. Aquatic LLC. So essentially, like, the guy who... So John Graham, he used to run quantitative uh, uh, equities... Or not just equities, just quant in general. Mm -hmm. uh, like, quantitative research for Citadel. He uh, left Citadel, um, as people do, and <laughs> decided to start his own firm. Um, and so Aquatic was 
his, his new firm, um, when I joined, there's around 20-ish people, but it's a purely quant firm, so we had no traders. Mm -hmm. um, it was just software engineers. So it felt very tech-like mm -hmm. um, in Chicago, uh, but um, I think that was really interesting because I feel like when you're at D.E. Shaw, it's like already so big and so developed. All the data sets you work with are perfect. They're not perfect, but they're very clean. Yeah. Um, and it's interesting kind of like my first project at Aquatic was going through and cleaning like tick data. Uh, tick data? Tick data. Do you know what tick data is? No. So basically when you have an exchange, uh, like you register every trade that comes through. Okay. And that's called tick data. Uh, and so that's coming in at like the level of like millisecond, or like not even, it's like microsecond level like yeah, counting yeah. and stuff, right? And every exchange and every, um, and kind of like every broker has their own record of like a kind of what's going on. Mm -hmm. um, and like when you have things like residual returns, right? You have to figure out where do I like cut off this ticket? So cause sometimes they'll like go in and like, like correct a trade or like, uh, or like, yeah, which is like, it actually happens like pretty often. Um, but if you're creating one minute bars and creating residual returns, it's like, there's like, like lots of small considerations. Like if the trade is corrected, but we want to do a bar snap and we're computing mm -hmm. our features on these things, like, do we include the correction, right? Yeah, and like yeah. how, how, how long do we hold this window open? Um, things like that. So it's actually, it's really interesting. Um, and you get like, so it's like every single trade that comes to the exchange, you get information on it. Mm -hmm. um, so, or unless, even if it's like a, like a dark pool, it's like you get some level of information. So it's, uh, it's like, how do you work? And it's often like not very clean at all. It's yeah. Like, like how, do you, how do you start working with this Big thing? Big mess. Versus I feel like when I was, when you're at Shaw and stuff, like everything, that's already been done ages ago, you know? Yeah, not probably. Really thinking about that. Uh, or like they gave me residual, like clean residuals or like just match. To work with it. Yeah, exactly. So. And um, did you also like develop some algorithms like for trading or what, what or, or did you do more like research that can then be used for some trading in the future? Yeah, I guess kind of all of those things. So I worked on, I worked on like two or three different things when I was at Aquatic. Uh, so the first is like, honestly, every, all the researchers were also coding at some point in time. Like I think our first job was like data cleaning, data analysis. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I worked on the first iteration of kind of creating residual returns. Um, and then also started working on like the first, like the model architecture that mm -hmm. we use to feed in these different features and like testing structure. Um, and then later I actually worked on transaction cost analysis. So we didn't have any transaction cost analysis when I started, which is basically the idea that like after you have a trade, you get some sort of information on like how fast it was executed, like how was it executed, right? Because like brokers won't execute, usually there's like some sort of time horizon yeah. on like when you get your trade executed. Um, and so you can like send in requests to optimize that time horizon in order to like maximize uh, potential profit. And also like every time you make a trade, the market reacts to your trade, right? Yeah. So there's like market impact factor as well in terms of like trying to better optimize when you want to like add trades into the market and like how you want to space out different purchases. Um, it matters more if you're like a larger firm um, yeah. and it depends on like, right. But, um, and like what sort of stocks you're purchasing, but yeah. Um, but yeah. And so it was working on models for trying to basically, it's like preliminary models for uh, better understanding how your, your stock purchase affects the market. I think um, a lot of people fail to factor in themselves as a market factor, market mover in some way, right? Yeah, that's one of the biggest things. Like, I think that's one of the biggest things about like uh, behavioral economics is mm -hmm. like you often forget that like the collective often like the average is actually quite good. Yeah, if, um, and you are part of the average. And you are part of the average. Yeah. Yeah. So just to give one interesting story, uh, in Disha's early days, they actually messed up a trade really badly. So there was a company um, that specialized in finding treasures. Quite literally. So they were like searching for some sunk ship that had like tons of gold from, I don't know, 300 years ago. <laughs> yeah. And their, their job was really just finding that. And essentially, I mean, they were publicly traded. Yeah. So, you know, if they find it, uh, great. If they don't find it, a lot of lost money. Yeah. And essentially, so, and I don't rem remember the exact details. So all of these shares used to be owned by probably another hedge fund. Um, and then, this, like, they couldn't find the treasure or something like that. No, yeah. sorry, this was owned by Disha. And, but it didn't really work. They couldn't find the treasure. Um, and at some point, Disha wanted to sell all of their, all their stuff. And the stock price was basically nothing, zero. Oh, wow. And then suddenly this hedge fund came along 
was like, oh yeah, we can buy that for you for, for the current market price because they had so many shares, if they would start selling it, the price would drop oh, so much. Yeah, exactly. Um, and somehow this hedge fund came along and said like, oh yeah, we're gonna buy this all at the current price. Yeah. Essentially avoiding Disha, you know, sparing them from losing all of it. Yeah. And then they were like, oh yeah, that's a cool thing to do. Um, but they weren't, well, it was like a big mistake afterwards because what they didn't think about is why would they do this? Yeah. So it kind of must be that they had some insider information about this. Yeah. And yes, the next day they sold that. Turns and out that they actually happened. had some information and they found the, the treasure, whatever it was. Oh no. The stock price like skyrocketed yeah. hundredfold People or People so. never do some things without reason. I think that's the thing. You have to be exactly. the market. If someone's willing to trade with you, it's because they think they're getting a better deal. Yeah. Yeah. Or, or, but that's also the other thing, they want to get some kind of insurance. They want to um, kind of hedge a trade. Exactly. Which can yeah. also be the case. Although if you're buying like shares for, I don't know, a treasure searching company, I don't really see how that could be hedging any kind of trades. Yeah, no, that's true. Yeah. yeah. I once heard a funny story of like someone I knew was like, like this was back when people were like trading options and futures like in college and using radios and stuff. They were trading futures of sheep. And mm -hmm. so they actually did, like, they didn't sell their futures or something. And so they actually got its delivery of, like, 200 sheep to their college <laughs> campus. They're like, what do I do with all these sheep? Oh, no. <laughs> so, yeah. Oh, it's pretty crazy. There's lots of, like, I feel like it sounds like it was, like, the Wild West back then. Oh, yeah, yeah. These fun things don't really happen these days. Although one time in the show, I was working with some group, they... They were, what were they doing? Um, yeah, they were like energy traders. Yeah. And then there was some issue. I mean, normally they just get features on, like options on some kind of yeah. crude oil or whatever. Um, but then I don't remember the details of the story, but they had some conflict with another hedge fund or bank that they bought stuff for. And then we were joking, like, let's just get, I don't know, 20 trucks, fill them up with oil and park it on like on Fifth Avenue in New York in front of their office, like, here's your oil. <laughs> <laughs> That's really funny. Yeah, they didn't do it in the end. <laughs> yeah. No, I think honestly, like, people will do anything for it. Like, I remember when I was at Disha, actually, um, like, they were, we were trying to decide, someone was trying to decide on the trading floor whether or not to buy Chipotle because, like, Queso was just about to come out. And so they had someone <laughs> call every single Chipotle franchise in America and ask them if they were selling Queso the next day. Um, oh, really? Yeah, which I think is so funny. <laughs> Trading in like finance is so fascinating. It's yeah. Sometimes, I mean, I, I, I kind of regret leaving the shop. Um, not staying yeah? there. It wow. was, I think it was like the happiest few months of my life. You can always go back, right? I, I could. Um, yeah. I mean, right now I'm doing a PhD. As we do. <laughs> as we do, as we do. <laughs> Made a mistake. No, just kidding. <laughs> it's fine. <laughs> PhD is awesome. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, not, it's not even about the money, just, it's just like it's such a cool, you know, you directly see what you're, the results of what you're doing. Yeah. Like with research, you spend so much time like figuring out stuff yeah. and then, you know, maybe you discover something small and then you publish it, but then, you know, you publish it and you move on to the next thing. Yeah. Like in, in finance, you directly see, okay, did you make money or did you not make money? Exactly. I think it's very clean. It's very easy to analyze performance too, I think. There's yeah. like no, yeah. yeah, there's like less politics in some way, which I think is really nice. Well, depends on which hedge fund. That's um, fair. Yeah. <laughs> speaking of politics, there was this, um, so Argentina, I think the government went bankrupt like a few times. And there's this very famous story. I forgot, do you maybe know the name of the hedge fund that got like in a fight with Argentina because they didn't get some money from Argentina? I don't think so. And they managed to convince like a few governments that they would be allowed to seize any kind of assets from Argentina, including like a government plane flying over. Um, I think they were flying over to Germany but then the Argentinian government had to kind of change the ownership of the plane so that their government jet couldn't be seized in Germany because the hedge fund actually managed to pressure their way into having like the right to seize assets of, of Argentina. And then at some point, Argentina had like some old um, battleship that they parked in some African country in a, in a port and the hedge fund actually managed to take over that battleship. Really? Yeah, they, I don't know if they like bribed someone or they just have Is good connections. Is this a US hedge fund? I don't Sorry? know. Which, which hedge? I don't know. Um, the story. Elliot Capital. Elliot Capital. Oh, yes, Elliot Capital. Wow, I didn't know that story. That's crazy. Yeah, I, I think it was like probably 20 years ago or so. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny that you could find it so quickly, but probably when you type in hedge fund seizes ship, ship immediately. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, okay, there we go. <laughs> A very famous story. <laughs> so, yeah, I don't I think the shop wouldn't do such things. No, I don't think so. I've never yeah. heard anything like crazy. <laughs> I mean, it's also dangerous to get involved in such things because as soon as you get involved in politics, there's a lot of yeah. 
bad people. No, it involved. is, and it's dangerous internationally too, because like yeah. it's very hard. Yeah. I mean, this guy surely didn't travel to Argentina anytime no, after that. No, definitely not. <laughs> For sure not. <laughs> so another thing I wanted to really talk to you about. So um, we've spoken about a while about finance, but let's talk about something more fun. Okay. You're into stand-up comedy. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> I am an amateur comic. <laughs> can yeah. I show some of your performances? Yeah, I can send you some. You I I'm going to include some clips right now. Okay, okay. <laughs> In elementary school, the other kids called me Math Machine. And that's because I don't think they knew the word calculator. So, reach that down. In gym class in high school, a blonde girl thought that she was giving me a compliment when she told me that I was really pretty, so I could probably be one of those really pretty nail people when I grew up. <laughs> True story. Um, unfortunately, I got waitlisted at really pretty nail people school. <laughs> so that's the real reason why I had to settle for MIT. So <laughs> thank you. I started when I was actually an undergrad. I was a senior. And I think for me, I I don't know, I feel like there's so many students, it can especially when you're an undergrad, it can be very easy not to like leave sort of this MIT bubble. And so I wanted to meet more people kind of in the general community. Mm -hmm. um, and so I took a stand-up class at Boston Improv. Um, and then I started doing some open mics and stuff. And they have classes continued. for stand-up comedy? They do, That's actually. so cool. Yeah, you just basically sit in a room and then you tell jokes to people and you hope that they laugh. That's, <laughs> what, <laughs> that's what the class structure is like. But, it sounds um, more fun than engineering. <laughs> it is fun. <laughs> <laughs> Quite literally, yeah. <laughs> And did people laugh at your jokes? <laughs> yeah, I mean, so I've done a couple, I've like done some shows in Boston. Um, over the pandemic, I did a lot of remote shows and stuff. Mm -hmm. um, I was actually like, I know someone who was hosting the longest comedy, they were trying to break the world record for the longest comedy show over Zoom. Oh, wow. um, and so I did a, like a five minute set on that as well at like 8 a.m. one time. So um, it's, I think it's really fun because it's also, like, I feel like academia is a pretty small community, and yeah. I feel like comedy is also, like, it's also, like, like it's very similar in that, like, you know a lot of, like, once you know a couple of people who do comedy, like, you yeah. know, like, a decent number of people in, like, the Boston area, and so. That's so cool. Um, yeah, it's, it's really fun. I really like it. So, when, when did you start doing that? Just, uh, like, during college when you took that during class? During college, yeah. So, 2019, I think. Yeah, 2019, and then I stopped for a little bit when I was working, and then I picked it back up again over the pandemic. That's so cool. So I've been doing it like pretty regularly since 2020. Are we gonna have a little tour at some point? Yeah, I mean, I can invite you to my next show. If you're oh, it's already scheduled. Um, this one, I, I did one last week, and I haven't scheduled one since. But I feel like like people who actually pursue comedy full time go to shows like multiple times a week. But I just, I cannot. I don't have, especially in person. I just. I don't have that kind of time. So I've well, you have to a work. PhD to work on. <laughs> yeah, I'm impressed by all the things you do. So. Oh, thank you. <laughs> I do, actually. Or I have some about math. Okay, so... I want to hear them, math jokes. Oh, yeah? Um, so basically, one of my jokes is that... Um, uh, so I came out to my mom uh, when I was an undergrad. Um, and so even though... I told her I was gay because even though sexuality is a spectrum, uh, when you're Asian, parents only take 100%. <laughs> like, I couldn't say I was a 5 out of 6 on the Kinsey scale, because for those of you who aren't calculate, so this is like a throwback, like that's a B. So. <laughs> Not acceptable. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's yeah. really funny. But uh, I think it works better on stage sometimes. Well, right now it's just me laughing. <laughs> yeah. and, and I heard the joke before, so. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> yes. Yeah, but... Oh, that's so cool. I wish more people would do such creative things. It's really it's hard. Really, it, I think it's really nice, though, because it's like a different form of creativity than like research, because I feel mm -hmm. like research also requires creativity, but it's nice to like go out and like interact with people. Um, and I think it's like it's kind of like there's a high when you go on stage that I really enjoy. So, oh, that's that's really yeah. nice. Now that, I mean, an interesting thing about it is being brilliant scientist doesn't give you any comp competitive edge in that. Like you have to start from scratch, basically. So it's like really a challenge. Yeah, it's very, I feel like people are like, oh, what do you do? And, and like usually like people do comedy, they try to do comedy like 
usually they're trying to pursue comedy almost full time, mm-hmm. and I'm like, oh, I'm a I'm a PhD student. They're like, really? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But it's so cool that you can do it at the same time. Yeah, it's been really good. I think it's also it's good. I think everyone needs something that you're not. Like I don't think anyone can do research 100% of the time. You need to yeah. you need something else to do and like to work on and to yeah. Which so. is also why I started this. Um, I mean it's kind of a creative project it having is, a YouTube yeah. channel. Figuring out what people are going to laugh at and be interested in like it's like and like what people can cuz people only laugh if they can connect with something, you yeah. know? <laughs> and so you have to make things like relatable. Like I think that's why I don't have as many specific MIT jokes. Yeah. Um, it's cuz it's very yeah, it's very hard to like it's a different environment, yeah. yeah. I always try being funny, but somehow people tell me that I'm not funny, so I give oh, up on being, making jokes. <laughs> I'll take you to some open mics and you can practice. Oh, I'm not sure. <laughs> that would be very scary for me. Yeah. <laughs> so maybe it's something about my face. People say that I look very serious. Even though I consider myself to be a very silly person, but apparently I don't look like it. <laughs> I, don't, I feel like the first time I saw you dressed as a monk, so maybe that's why. I as a gym bro monk, <laughs> yeah. yeah, okay. <laughs> then I didn't look very serious. No. With like a cross around my neck. Yeah, I was like, huh? He's dressing as either like a monk that just like didn't have sleeves. <laughs> I don't know what's happening. Well, a gym bro monk. <laughs> yes, that was my explanation to everyone <laughs> when they asked me. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that is not true. It's not true. Okay, that's true. That's so funny. <laughs> but I always think like I, I'm. <laughs> I go to the gym so many times a week. You might have got to show them off on Halloween as a... <laughs> exactly. I mean, I have no time to go on beach vacations or anything like that. So what do I, what do I work out first at least? And I was like, that's my one chance. <laughs> one chance. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. It's so funny. Now, now everybody knows the truth. <laughs> I think you should so, keep it in. <laughs> well, I'm going I'm to keep it. I usually always say like, oh yeah, I'm gonna remove that, remove that because it's embarrassing. But in the end, I just keep everything. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, I want to ask you about about your research. You don't mind switching oh, you back did. to these okay, questions? Sorry. Yeah. yeah, no, for sure. I mean, I think this is like a good understanding of the social side of grad school. You know, I had someone ask me earlier this week who was deciding whether or not to go to MIT. She's like, everyone apparently says that MIT grad students are super lonely and don't socialize at all. And I'm like, trying to fix I that. I don't think that's true. <laughs> I just, I don't know. So I think it's good that like you can reveal that. MIT, like, we don't just sit in our rooms doing research all day, but, um, so, on my research, (laughs) (laughs) so I work in Professor John Guttag's lab, um, so we are the clinical and applied machine learning group, Um, but basically what I do specifically is I do a lot of, well, currently I'm doing a lot of x-ray modeling, Um, so what that means is that we, like, so my current particular project is that uh, when you get an x-ray taken at a hospital, often you get like the front of, you get mm-hmm. multiple views taken, right? And so yeah. uh, you get like the front frontal view and you'll often get like a lateral view as well. So that allows you to see kind of like the back of the lung cavity that you mm-hmm. can't see uh, when you have just a frontal view. Yeah. Um, and so kind of what I'm working on is a lot of current x-ray models, they only use the frontal view in order to do sort of like disease classification, mm-hmm. segmentation, things like that. Um, and our belief is that you can use both images uh, have, especially for some diseases like pneumonia and stuff, uh, where you can see the lung area better using the lateral region. Um, you can use both views in complementary ways uh, to get a better understanding of what's happening in order to help um, diagnose risk, for example, for a patient. Uh, so lots mm-hmm. of it's like computer imaging, but more for healthcare applications. Uh, medical images are very different from things like natural images. Yeah. And like. Uh, like Google image search and stuff, for example. So. It's even hard to get the data in the first place. Exactly, yeah. So a lot of it is under HIPAA regulations. Um, so I did like a COVID x-ray project earlier. Um, that took like, it took half a year just to get through the HIPAA regulations. Um, it's very, so I think, and it, often the data sets tend to be a lot smaller and also less clean. Like it's much harder to get lots of uh, like informative labels for chest x-rays, right? Because yeah. you have to speak with experts as well and better to understand what's going on versus like everyone can see a picture of a bird and a dog and be like, okay, <laughs> this is a bird and this is a dog. Um, so I yeah. think there's lots of interesting challenges for, um, for medical image data that I think doesn't necessarily exist uh, for, uh, for things like natural images. And, and you published a very interesting paper this year 
I actually read that yesterday before the party to get myself hyped up and read your paper. Oh, yeah, <laughs> okay. You read um, London, yeah. yeah. That was about COVID, right? Yes, yeah, that was the COVID project. So essentially, there's a lot of risk prediction models that use the electronic health record data. So a lot of machine learning in healthcare is basically using kind of the electronic health record to make, it's never to replace doctors, but it's often to like help predict which patients are at like low risk or high risk of deterioration. Um, and so my work was looking at, so patients are already COVID positive, right? And so that's something, we're not diagnosing for COVID because mm -hmm. um, that can be done with a test. You don't yeah. need a machine learning model to do that. Um, but we were trying to say, if a patient already has COVID, um, can we use the image of their chest X-ray as well as the electronic health record data to better understand which patients are at high and low risk of deterioration? So it's not as like, it's not, Sim it's not a simple question because x-ray information is very different from like the binary variables that are available mm -hmm. kind of in the electronic health record. You can't just stick the two together and yeah. stick it into a model. Um, so a lot of it is like figuring out how do I combine these different sources of information, right? Because like the x-ray has a lot more bits, but not all those bits are informative, right? So yeah. it's like, how do I get some sort of understanding of like the information that's necessary from the chest x-ray and be able to combine that with like these Basically, they're all binary variables, right? We do some sort of quantization. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so that was the, that project. And we were able to, we were, I mean, the punchline was this, that we were able to identify a lot more low risk patients with a much higher, uh, like much higher accuracy for. So uh, what was the idea that you can <clears throat> also like help hospitals determine if they have overcapacity, which patients are not high enough risk that you would keep them and rather prioritize someone who's higher risk? Exactly, yeah. So when that work was published and also like prior when we were working on it, it was kind of when people were worried mm -hmm. um, and we, there was a lot of field hospitals opening up. And often there's actually a New York Times article at the, like, that said that field hospitals were actually underutilized during the pandemic, mostly because people like didn't know who to send to the field hospitals, right? There yeah. just wasn't enough information. And you don't want to send someone to the field hospital. It's not like it's just like, it's not lesser quality care, but it's like often harder to like get things like ventilated and stuff if you're yeah. in a field hospital, um, just because there's not as many resources that are yeah. available there. Um, and so it's about like, so there was this huge creation of field hospitals, but this huge underutilization because people didn't know who to send. Um, so it's kind of, I think that's kind of where like risk, uh, risk understanding really helps and kind of risk prediction because machine learning is actually, uh, really good at doing that um, in comparison to like doctors because doctors are really good at diagnosing. We never want to mm -hmm. diagnose, but I think in terms of like understanding and taking in a lot of data from previous patients and better understanding like, oh, like maybe this patient needs a little bit more extra monitoring, they have a higher chance of deterioration. Mm -hmm. um, is something that I think machine learning can actually add to a hospital environment. Um, are, these things, are these things like already used? I mean, not maybe specifically your research, but like machine learning models that like analyze COVID, like data about patients. Yeah. Are they really used? Um, so the hard thing with deploying machine learning models in hospitals is that the same amount of regulations we have to get the data, we have to go through the same amount of regulations and studies to actually deploy the models. Mm -hmm. um, so oftentimes there's a lot of models that are running in the background. Um, so I'm not sure if mine is currently running, but I know the EHR model that I built on top of, um, that actually is running in the background, but I don't think it's in use yet. Like, mm -hmm. I don't think doctors actually use it to make decisions, medical decisions at the moment, but oftentimes, like, what people will do is they'll run these models in the background for years, collect the data, and then run another study to see how well those predictions actually help patients. Like oh yeah, that makes outcomes, sense. Right, and so if there's like there's like retrospective studies on top of the kind of the machine learning aspect, um, it's very easy to. The, the, I think the least like blocked part of this whole process is like once you get the data, like you can run so many models on it, but it's very hard to get it actually to deployment um, into use in hospitals. Uh, Do you think it's also? I mean, these doctors don't understand machine learning probably, so. How, how do you even convince a doctor to use something and you know, how do you make them believe that that actually potentially does a better job than they when they look at an image? Yeah, well, I think so a lot of, right, so there's several parts to that. Like the first is that you want to be able to take in, so we worked with a pulmonologist during like the project that I was working on in order to better understand like when we're looking at kind of the gradients 
of these images doesn't make sense. Like, are we highlighting yeah. the right regions that actually, uh, that look like, right, like the lung area, like, should be the area that we're looking at, yeah. essentially, right, to understand if there's, like, a higher or low risk of deterioration. So, like, are we actually seeing those when we look at kind of, like, the gradients of the networks that we're running? And so that's kind of, like, a preliminary check. Um, I guess another thing that uh, these models often, you try to make them as simple and as lightweight as possible. So oftentimes for like risk prediction models in healthcare, a lot of them are like very straightforward logistic regressions. And the reason why is because like you want to be able to understand which factors are contributing, right? Like if you have this like deep neural network. You have no very, idea. Yeah, yeah. You, you don't have enough data. You have no idea what's happening. And it's very, it's very complicated to understand like what, like what factors are the most meaningful um, and the most usable. Um, and so I think that's something that like oftentimes the models themselves, tend to, we try to make them more lightweight and simpler. Also because healthcare hardware is not very advanced. That's yeah. the other thing. Um, and I think finally, another thing that a lot of people in my lab are trying to do is you take an input from doctors as well. So like how can we modify models and give more insight into like the explainability of models in order yeah, to yeah. allow for doctors to like, oh, like, Maybe, like, so one thing is, like, maybe you present some of the nearest neighbors of, uh, of, like, a particular snapshot, right? And then doctors can say, oh, you're right, like, this does fit in with this category and stuff. And so, like, providing, trying to find ways of providing more insight is also, like, kind of an active, uh, active area of research as well. So, yeah, but that's a very interesting question. That's really fascinating. Uh, how did you uh, move from, like, let's say, quant stuff to, like, more medical, medical applications? Um, I think it's very so. So I'm more interested... Like, I think the application space is nice because you can actually, like, it's very motivating in, yeah. in a sense. But I think in terms of, like, the actual interests, like, I work more in the modeling domain, right, where it's actually an interesting computer science question. Um, and I think that, like, essentially what quant research tries to do is you're trying to understand the world. And the point is, is to make money, right? Like, yeah. you want to understand the world in order to make predictions, in order to make money at some sort of time horizon. Um, and I feel like... I mean, like, the stuff I do now is pretty similar as well, right? Like, I'm, like, taking in images of healthcare patients and, like, I'm trying to make predictions, mm -hmm. um, like, with real-world caveats and uh, And for a good questions. cause. Yeah. <laughs> actually improving medicine, yeah. Yeah, and so I think that that's, I think in that sense, like, the interests actually align pretty, pretty well. Um, and honestly, computer vision is something that a lot of, uh, like, a lot of, when I was working at DeShaw, like, a lot of other intern projects on the futures team and on the options team, Two of the quant projects were actually in satellite imagery. Oh, wow. Um, because you can actually understand how crop growth yeah. works using satellite imagery. Um, and that was like a huge thing, uh, right? Because you, you always want the next edge. You want to know what's going to happen, what, how the food prices are going to exactly. develop. Exactly. Yeah. You want a better, like, the more information you have about the understanding of the world, the more, like, the better predictions you're going to have, right? You know, in some sense. What I always think about, so now these hedge funds are so smart that sometimes when I want to understand things about politics, I just look at prices of certain things, how they develop, and assume that, these, that like the average of the people who you know, push these prices up and down are so smart that it can actually tell me something about the probability of a certain event happening. Or look at betting odds. Like, I never bet for money, yeah. but I always look at betting odds just because, you know, I don't know, I want to know what is the chance of Brexit happening back in yeah, 2016. Exactly. Yeah, there's like whole political marketplaces for that type of stuff. And like yeah. Trump winning and stuff, you can like watch it change. So yes, I just monitor that because like, honestly, the experts, I mean, they were like constantly singing, yeah, I think like there's a chance for this and that, but they, they are not even nearly as smart as actually the betting odds because they're a result of so many people, so yeah. many smart people together. Yeah, no, I completely, yeah, I think like even in like the, like when the 2016 election, like a lot of like people were like, oh, why did the surveys perform so poorly? And it's because like the people, you only survey the people who come to your news site. So it's already like a biased yeah. segment of the population. But yeah, I feel like if you look at like a marketplace, right, like it's, it's often times a lot more equal. Um, and you can actually get a better understanding of, yeah, of yeah. what's happening. So. Although sometimes they also get it wrong. I remember with Brexit, um, the odds against Brexit, they were estimated too high. So oh. some traders in the ESHA actually betted that the Brexit would happen, that a referendum would go through. Yeah. And I think they all made like, quite a lot of money of it. <laughs> Just because, I don't know, maybe it was bad weather that day or something like that, and they assumed that they overestimated some probabilities. Yeah. And yeah, they won a lot of money. Oh, wow. But then, you know, Brexit happened, so <laughs> I don't think they were happy. That's really funny. 
I actually, I knew someone, there's one betting like pool on like this political marketplace and like how many times Trump will tweet. And someone that I used to work with wrote a Twitter bot to like, to like model how many, like, and he would, he actually made like $12,000 in that marketplace. And then he donated it all to the Clinton Foundation. <laughs> so it was really funny. I like uh, that approach. <laughs> yeah. That's, yeah. That's really that's fascinating. So interesting. So many, so many possibilities. And um, where do you want to go after your PhD? What are your big plans? Oh my gosh, where do you want to go? But I think I... <laughs> Um, so I'm actually, I'm working for Microsoft Research this summer um, oh, cool. in Cambridge. And so I think I'm going to see whether or not I like research and industry. And then that's going to help me figure out what I want to do after. Because I always say I want to go into industry, but like, I've never tried it. So Should I guess do startups. Very, yeah, I do. I actually, I think it would be, I really liked working in a startup. Um, and I think it would be really cool to be able to do that. Uh, most of my friends who graduated, a lot of them work in startups. But I feel like it's something... I, need, I would need to find something, I don't really have an idea at the moment, you know, so. I mean, me neither, but just, you know, the cool thing about starting a company now that I've done it myself is you're 100% in control. You know, before yeah. that I thought that I have a lot of decision power and a lot of control over things in my life, but it's only once you actually start a company you realize that, every, that you can just do something, you know. Normally you have to ask for approval yeah. or get opinions of people, but here, you know, you have to act quickly and just, you know, react to everything, be very smart, make smart decisions. Yeah. I think it was the like, coolest experience, probably even cooler than the issue, like starting yeah. my own company. Well, if you had, yeah, but maybe if you, we can talk about it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> we want to do something with machine learning. We have to find the right idea is. for it. I agree, yeah. Yeah, I mean, there are like so many possible spaces, I and mean, there's so much potential in the machine learning, I just currently don't have the, the yeah. idea that would say, okay, that's worth doing. I think a lot of, I, I've been very skeptical about crypto, like startups and stuff, but yeah. I feel like a lot of my friends are very into it. And I'm trying to like read a little bit more to try mm -hmm. to figure out what is like, what makes it like so hot, <laughs> you know, like all these posters about NFTs and stuff. Yeah, they're all around us. Oh, crazy. <laughs> well, I had John, do you know John? Uh, Purifor. Purifor. Yeah, right, you yes. mentioned you know him. Yeah, he was here in the podcast, friend. sitting in this exact space. <laughs> he's, uh, he's so fun. I really like John. He is really cool, yeah. Uh, I think people really like the podcast episode with him. Yeah. We started with by rapping Eminem. <laughs> he's an, such an interesting person. He's also like one of the most social people I know. <laughs> yeah, he, uh, he can talk to anyone, I swear to God. Really? I think Like so. people that he doesn't know? Yeah. Like, he's just extremely, like, he's, he's extremely friendly. <laughs> oh, wow. I, I wish I had that skill or that courage to just talk to anyone. Yeah. I'm too I shy. Like you're pretty good at it at your party. I was talking to someone, I was like, who do you know? Yeah, they're like, oh, like, I don't really know. I know someone who knows someone here. I was like, oh, I know Samuel. And he was like, oh, who's Samuel? I was like, oh my gosh, you're like Gatsby. Who <laughs> <laughs> your party job? <laughs> oh, yeah, we're back to the party topic. I still have situations where I where walk around Harvard campus and random people say, hi, Samuel. I'm yes. like, do I know you? I'm like, oh, yeah, I was at your party. I'm like, oh, cool, yeah. And we spoke for like five minutes, like, oh, yeah, yeah, I remember, remember definitely. <laughs> Oh, fun That's times. Really funny. Fun times. So thank you so much for, for being on my podcast. Yeah, thank you for really having me. Really enjoyed the conversation. This was really fun. Absolutely. I really enjoyed this. Thank you so much.